Today's text, uh, Philippians 4, verses 2 through 9. Paul writes, I entreat Euodia, and I entreat Syntyche, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say it, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be, known, be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Good morning. It's my privilege and honor to uh, bring you a message from God's Word this morning from the text that JP just shared with us. And I wanted to start with just a few remarks about where we've been. Uh, The book of Philippians is a beautiful letter that that Paul wrote to his beloved church in Philippi, a church that he, uh, of course, went and planted with the help of those who were there, who had heard, uh, who heard the uh, gospel and responded to it in kind. And uh, after this, we find that Paul is now in prison, and he's writing to them to both encourage them, exhort them, and to um, give them instruction so that they might uh, continue on in what they had been called to be and do. So Paul reminds them that it's impossible Uh, I'm sorry, first of all, he reminded them that uh, they are a church where love abounds, and he wants them to continue in that love, and that love, of course, was uh, for for Christ. Paul reminds them that it's impossible for the church of Christ uh, to have joy without unity. And we then learn that a Christ follower, being a Christ follower, requires effort, decisive, focused effort. Then the next message, we learned that joy is critical for our spiritual well-being. And last week, Wayne taught us that, uh, that uh, biblical theology must inform the thinking of heavenly citizens. Now, today's text reveals to us, uh, and you're going to see kind of a, a theme here that keeps kind of pinging back and forth. Uh, and so, as, as we know, when when God repeats things, and Paul in this case, you know, through Paul he's repeating things, we probably ought to take notice of it. So today's text reveals to us that unity is absolutely crucial for the Christ follower to abide in joy. So uh, with that, 
being said, uh, would you please bow with me and we'll entreat God to, uh, to inform our time of study this morning. Father, um, it's always uh, with fear and trembling that I get up here in front of my brothers and sisters to uh, bring your word because um, I'm reminded that scripture tells us that um, our words are, have no power. And I know that every day, um, I speak many words on many different topics and subjects. And so it's easy to talk. And Father, it's not so easy to say things of eternal value. We realize, Father, that it's only your word that brings uh, eternal life, and it's only your word that has the power to change lives, uh, that, to bring them to your uh, kingdom. And so, Father, I just ask that this morning you would just sweep me aside um, use me as your mouthpiece and, uh, and give us your message this morning. And we will rejoice in hearing what you bring to us. And Father, we also ask that you would change our hearts, minds, and actions from this day forward. Uh, because it's only through our living out the gospel that we might become more like Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. So as we just heard J.P. read, uh, the, the Apostle Paul just kind of came to a bit of a, of a turning point in his letter to the Philippians. And he, at that turning point, suddenly he went from exhortations and, and, and warnings to a more pointed and, and focused uh, address to three specific people directly. There's a fourth that's mentioned, but three people are directly uh, addressed in this. And in this address, the, the Apostle Paul brings out that there was a dispute among a couple of the ladies there at the church in Philippi. Now, a couple of things we can quickly deduce from what, uh, from what Paul points out there. First of all, he names them as co-laborers, so we know that they're believers. These are not ladies who uh, just you know, were causing some trouble in the neighborhood, Rather, these were ladies that he knew well and that would be well known to the church in Philippi as well. And so he points out that, um, that they, they, need to, uh, they need to agree in the Lord. The words that, that uh, the Apostle Paul uses there, he says, I entreat Eodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also true companion." Help these women who have, uh, who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. So, as I said, we're, it's very clear that the people that, that uh, Paul is addressing here are all believers, and he wants them to, uh, to make amends for whatever it is that's, that's uh, troubling them. And it's interesting, too, that Paul would take time out from his exhortation to the, to the church at Philippi to, uh, to address the disagreement that these ladies were having. And so, as we read on, we also recognize that the co-laborers that are in the gospel, uh, there's, there's someone who's not named in our English Bible. And that was, if you see it, it it's, there's a comma there where it says, um, where, where uh, Paul writes um, in verse Three, that uh, he wants the true, the true, I'm sorry, lost my place. True companion, sorry. 
is how that is uh, is how that name has been rendered. Now the transliteration of the of the word from my study that came out was that the the name that was used in the Greek apparently was um, was um, oh my goodness, Suzagos, uh, Um Greek is not my forte, <laughs> and so. Paul is, Paul is asking uh, Susagos to help these ladies. Now, it's interesting because, as I pointed out, in our Bible, it's, it's rendered true companion. Now, the, the kind of transliteration, uh, translation of the, the name Susagos is uh, yoke fellow or true yoke fellow. And so, as I said, in the, uh, in the ESV, it's been rem- rendered um, true, uh, true companion. And so uh, that kind of led me down a, a little bit of a rabbit trail, but I think it's an important one uh, because what we find out here that as Paul's addressing this conflict, that um, he's asked someone specifically in reality. And uh, there were three main uh, ideas on that that came out in my study. And one was that, uh, that he was using it euphemistically for the entire church at Philippi. And another was that the, uh, he was addressing the uh, bishop at the Church of Philippi. However, um, and I'm, I'm going to go ahead and uh, side with John MacArthur here uh, because he knows a lot more than I do. Uh, and uh, his take on it was that because it's a proper name in the Greek, that Suzagos was actually a person and that he used the name euphemistically because it was a name, I'm sorry, that... that, um, that, that it was apropos to what he was trying to communicate here because as a true believer or a true yoke fellow, it was someone that, he, that everyone would identify and understand was, uh, was very well versed in the gospel and who was also um, one who would know the truth and would stand by the truth. And this is not unprecedented either in Paul's writings because we find at other times in Paul's writings, that uh, he used names to communicate the truth that he was trying to convey in the message. In the book of Philemon, chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, we read about Paul using the name Onesimus. And if you recall, Onesimus then means useful. So again, here we've got a name that is, you know, of a person who actually, you know, conveys the truth that's being written by Paul to the church that he's communicating with. Another time was in the book of Acts in the fourth chapter when he addresses Barnabas. And Barnabas, if you'll recall, means literally son of encouragement. And he was writing to the, to the people at, at now I forgot which church it was, but in the fourth chapter of Acts, to encourage them. And so that's why he was sending Barnabas. Now, uh, as, uh, as we go through uh, this morning, I wanted to, to bring out uh, uh, something that's a little bit, um, th- that's going to help you understand my frame of mind and where I'm trying to go with, with some of these illustrations and thoughts. Back when I was in high school, there was a fellow named James Burke that uh, wrote a book called Connections. And uh, the, the point of that book was looking at all of the different things that happen in the world and often we look at them in, uh, in isolated, uh, in, in complete isolation. 
And that what that book was looking at was and trying to expand on was uh, how those connections of things actually bring about in his instance and what he was writing about in that book, technological, uh, mechanical, you know, and uh, different advances to our society. And I'm, what I would posit to you is, I think that often we need to make sure that we don't uh, miss the major <clears throat> portion of what God's trying to say and make those connections with what is being said so that we get the full and clear picture of what is communicated in God's word. So as we read on, as I said, uh, Paul was encouraging these co-laborers in the gospel to take care of, of a conflict. Why? Why does Paul you know, address a personal issue in a letter to the church at Philippi? And, and uh, the, the obvious answer to that would be because our personal and private conflicts are not so personal or private. They actually, you know, they actually affect the church and, and the body as a whole. And so this clearly communicates that those failings and that sin that's in our lives that affect our church, we need to deal with and we need to root them out and we need to watch for squabbles that breed discord and discontent. Conflict and sin make us weak spiritually is what he's going to what he's what he's saying here how did they do that because we the body of christ were created to work in harmony and we're supposed to fit together to expand the church of christ and uh, we do all that via the message and the power of the gospel so this interpersonal matter is important enough to, to the apostle paul that he calls out a person again says suzagos <laughs> to help these women work out the problem that, they, that they're having. A couple of other things that we want to be sure we're clear on. Um, Suzagos was, was asked to go in and help them, but we also know something else by, if, by a careful reading of the text. Number one, it's not a doctrinal uh, uh, disagreement that they're having. If there was a doctrinal or a, or a church theological issue at stake, Paul would have obviously sided with whoever was correct and, and you know, told them to you know, get in line, those who were not agreeing with what Scripture says. So this is just something else. And, uh, and so it's important, again, that we realize that even little squabbles, or especially little squabbles that have nothing to do with theology, can be just as devastating to our witness. And, by, and when I say our witness, that's the second point that's so absolutely critical. It doesn't just, our, our, if we have dissension and disagreement, disagreement or disunity in our body, the difficulty spreads beyond our body, and it's also evident to those around us. The people around us that I'm talking about are those who are not Christ followers. And so if they see that there's disunity in the body, they're not going to be attracted to our Savior because they're going to see the discord and not want to be a part of that. So as I said, we want to make sure that, uh, that we take care of those, those types of squabbles as, as quickly as possible, and that's what Paul is pointing out here. And he's, he's doing all of that because it's so absolutely critical that unity be how we're identified and how we operate as a church. Now, unity is also something that I believe we need to define because our worldly definitions, I believe, are completely inadequate. If we look in the dictionary, 
for our, uh, for our definition of, of unity, the number one definition will be one, uh, the state of being one. The second most popular was whole or totality as combining all of its parts into one. Third was the state or fact of being united or combined into one as of the parts of a whole unification. Fourth was absence of diversity, unvaried or uniform character. The fifth is oneness of mind, feeling, etc., as among a number of persons, concord, harmony, or agreement. I submit to you that every one of those, save the fifth maybe, are pretty inadequate when we look at biblical truth and, and God's in God's economy, how we would define unity. Because it's not being one that makes us unified or or in unity. And it's not a a combining of parts into one or a homogenization as though we aren't still individual. We're all still very much individuals as as parts of the body of Christ. We are combined into one as in the church, but, but paradoxically and beautifully, we still have our individuality. And I think it's also obvious the reason for that is because God doesn't want everyone to be um, the same other than he wants them to be like Christ. And so he wouldn't make us all different if he wanted us to be the same. He obviously, God, God being who he is, he could have made us all look the same, sound the same, you know, act, act the same, and, you know, and then there would be no problem with unity in this type of, of a definition. But that's not who God's called us to be. That's not who he created us to be. So we should celebrate that. So again, what are we looking for? What are we driving at with unity? It's not an absence of diversity, which I would submit to you is a very popular um, definition of unity today. Very, very, the, the body of Christ is an, a very diverse, and it should be a very diverse body. And so again, we should celebrate that. No, it's having a singular goal and, and, and a singular purpose that should be where our unity lies and then everything else branches out from. So if we think about how we see unity used elsewhere in Scripture also, that might help us to understand more clearly what God would be driving at and what Paul would be driving at when he talks about that we need to be in unity. So, as we, hopefully we've identified and, and recognized that most of the time our minds go to incorrect uh, definitions of the word unity. So again, let's, let's step forward and let's find out what God has to say. So, if you will turn, uh, I would uh, encourage you to turn to Ephesians chapter 4 because there's going to be a few different ver- uh, verses I'm going to be going through there, but I think those are going to help start to illuminate what it means uh, to, to be unified in Christ. So here we read, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, 
by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And we also read in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. See, God's communicating through Paul in these passages in Philippians that our unity of mind, again, as I said, is not a homogenization of who we are, but a singular purpose, a goal and focus of what we are called out to accomplish. And when we lose sight of what that central goal is, that's the time that we have trouble. And uh, that's the time when we, we have friction between us, interpersonally and spiritually, we suffer. And uh, let me illustrate this in a, in, a, in a way that I hope we'll be able to make sense of. Everybody knows what a roof is, correct? <laughs> so there's one right above us. Now, of a roof, when you, when you look up at a roof, in reality, all you're seeing is paint, right? So if you go outside, if you stepped outside of the building and you wanted to get a different look, different perspective to see more of the roof, what would you see? In reality, all you'd see are shingles or more in reality, the uh, aggregate or uh, I forgot what there was. There was actually an odd, oh, dragon's tooth, I think is what they actually call the aggregate that's on top of the mat on a shingle. But we think about a roof and we think, oh, it's just a roof and it's a singular object, but it's actually a system. And so in that system, there's, we're really only seeing two things. And underneath those dragon's tooth crystals, there's a, there's a fiberglass mat that's impregnated with asphalt. But that's still not a complete roof. So underneath that, there's felt that's been impregnated with asphalt or, or butamen. And that still wouldn't give us a complete roof because it won't hold itself up. wouldn't hold up to the snow, the rain, all of the, you know, the wind that we have here all the time. So underneath that, there has to be a substrate. And that's going to be plywood or orient strand board. In the older, olden days, it was more just wood. <laughs> and that still wouldn't be adequate either because we've got such a span that it wouldn't hold up. So beneath that, there are trusses. But trusses, again, are not simply... Uh, just pieces of wood, because they won't stand up either. So the trusses or rafters have what's called multi-spike gussets, which are pieces of steel that have been purposed for, you know, to be able to hold the joints together to keep those pieces of wood from moving. But if we threw up trusses and threw, threw the plywood on it, it still wouldn't be enough. So then there have to be lateral braces that go through there. And when we get done with all of that, it wouldn't look very nice from underneath here. Plus, it gets pretty hot in the summer here, pretty cold in the winter. So in between all of that, there is insulation. And then on the underside, so that it'll look nice, we put, in this case, gypsum board, which isn't just gypsum. It's gypsum with a paper uh, sandwiching the gypsum. And all of it's held together with nails and screws and glue. So what's the point of all that? The point is, when we if we look at a roof, what's the purpose of a roof? It really has one purpose, right? To keep the elements off our heads and to keep us from being exposed to the elements and the wind and the weather 
that's outside. But if we lose sight of that, if all of a sudden, there's two, two different directions that we're going to go with this. One is if we lose sight of the singular purpose, then suddenly we could end up being like, um, there's, a, there's a certain pretty famous architect that hailed from this area of the world. Um, many of you, you may have heard of Frank Lloyd Wright. Drew and, and created beautiful architecture. One of the things, though, that his architecture is known for, his roofs don't hold up over time, and they tend to leak because he let, func- or he let form take precedent over function. And by that, what I'm really saying is he, lo- that, that, that he was losing sight of the major and, and primary purpose of the roof over our head is to keep the weather off our heads. So, two things. One is... It has to have a singular, we can't lose sight of that singular purpose. A roof that does not keep the weather out. It, we don't think anything about it until there's a hole or a leak, right? Then we think a lot about it. And there's a, you know, there's a song, The Arkansas Traveler, where one of the, signs, or, you know, one of the lines in the song is, you know, my, when, when the sun shines, my roof doesn't leak, and when it's raining, I can't fix it, right? We think about it a lot if there's water dripping on our heads or there's snow blowing in. Singular purpose absolutely critical. Can't miss it. Second thing is, it's a whole system. There's not one piece of that whole, all of those items that I described to you that's not important. Should make us think of another scripture, doesn't it? In 1 Corinthians, I think it's the 12th chapter. Let me just turn there, see if I actually remembered correctly. Where it talks about the body. And in the, in the description of the body, the Apostle Paul is writing, let's see, da, 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 da. did I get the wrong chapter? Pardon? Twelve. Thank you. Yep. Um, you, you know, the can can't say that it's not needed. Um, oh, I went to 2 Corinthians. That's why it doesn't look right. It's a terrible thing to be going blind. There we go. That makes much more sense. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all members of the body, though many, are one body, as uh, I do have glasses. It's really cool that they invented these. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. So, again, going back to the roof, there's all these different parts that are all absolutely integral in making sure that that roof fulfills the, the, the singular purpose that it has. And where we err, just like a roof, is if we, if we let form uh, go in front of function, meaning not just that singular reason. If we take something else and put it above what our, what our primary purpose is, that's when we're going to run into trouble. 
Now, what's our primary purpose? Well, we're going to get to that. I guess we could, uh, we could go ahead and, uh, just in case if you were really, 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 really wanting to know right away, our purpose is to serve God, to love God and, and uh, keep his commandments. We're to spread the gospel. It's as simple as that, right? And so if we, when we lose sight of that, when we go a different direction with who we are, then we are going to suffer with this unity. We'll no longer have that oneness of mind and we'll be uh, in discord and out of harmony with one another. Which brings me to my second point. After we, if, we, if we're sure that we haven't gone wrong and we, uh, we have kept the main thing the main thing, then we realize that, oh, sorry, I missed one really important thing that I wanted to bring out. In, uh, as we let, if we let our disunity detract from who we are and what the message of the church is, then, uh, oops, then we'll, this moved. Um, th- then we'll find ourselves uh, um, with problems such as what was being addressed in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, where we read, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preached to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And we also read in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, just earlier in that same book, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So that's really what our main purpose is. We need to be obedient to our calling, and then the benefits that we, that we enjoy will flow out to us as well. Paul makes that very clear in the passage that he's uh, coming up here, where he uh, follows the urgings and pleadings of Philippians 4.4, 4, or what follows is the, the pleadings and urgings of Philippians 4.4, 4, where then he moves on to say, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. So we're supposed to have joy in, in, our, um, in, in living out our lives and living out in the, the unity that we should share. And he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. We're reminded that others are going to, to notice who we are and what we're doing. And what they should notice should be a reflection of our Lord. And that's going to either be a positive or a negative uh, uh, reflection that they're going to see. So as I said, this brings us to our second point. 
And uh, this is another time when I, I, I like to, I like to uh, uh, define words. So he's really what he's saying in Rejoice is that we should be joyful. We should be filled with joy. And I think in, the, uh, in our modern day thoughts of joy, very often it's just confused with happiness. And I would submit to you that, that uh, joy is much, more in, is much deeper than happiness. One commentator that I read put it this way, it's a delight in life that runs deeper than pain or pleasure. Now when we think about you know, uh, verses and, and situations in the Bible that uh, speak to joy, we think of things like you know, Jesus uh, praying at the, in the Garden of Gethsemane and, uh, and also in, um, I think it's in Hebrews, where who for the joy that set before him, he, dis- he endured the cross, despising its shame. So it, those were not happy times as he, was, um, as he was reflecting on and looking forward to wh- what he knew he had to go through. So we need to realize that as we're living a joy-filled life, it won't always be a time of happiness. So then we need to, um, then we need to make sure that we don't lose sight of how we tap into the joy that we're supposed to be reflecting and that we're supposed to be um, exhibiting to those around us. Consider Psalm 16, verses 10 and 11. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life in your presence. There is faithfulness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So again, it's going to be happiness that's deferred even when we're going through difficult times. So that's where it's so vitally important to know that joy is not just happiness right now. So we don't have to put a a happy face on whatever it is that God has us going through in the life that he's called us to live. Or we read in Romans 15, uh, verse 13, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. The fullness of joy is found flowing from God himself. If we truly cast our cares on him, realizing every gift comes from the Lord, and that he will not leave us or forsake us, our worries or anxieties will leave us, because he will know the peace that passes all understanding. And this encouragement from Paul is beautiful for us believers because he reveals why we should rely on the Lord as well as how the Lord will accomplish spreading peace to his children. He further goes on in the passage to say, um, after the Lord is at hand in verse 5, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So we're supposed to be joyful, but in the middle of that, Paul puts in in verse 6, don't be anxious about anything. Which should also cause us to recognize that, uh, well, we're pretty anxious people. (laughs) And uh, I I looked up some some statistics, uh, which were kind of mind-blowing. Uh, by the CDC and some other areas, they, they, they put out that, uh, and let me preface my remarks here by saying, anyone who, um, uh, I'm not trying to give any medical advice, 
And anyone that, that needs medication with their doctor's help, you know, that's exactly what you should be doing. But I think as a general, generally, we find ourselves to be a more and more anxious people in, you know, in, in our world. And so while these statistics aren't taken from the church, typically we're not too far off from, from the society that we live in. And uh, so in the statistics that they had on the CDC's website, they pointed out that 13.2% of adults ages uh, 18 and over are in, on antidepressant medications. 17.7% of those are female, 8.4% were male, and that the use of antidepressants is highest um, in, uh, in women over the age of 60. Um, and yet the Apostle Paul is telling us, be anxious uh, for nothing. And so then we need to explore how then do we, how, how do we get past the anxiety? And again, I, I'm not trying to um, say if, if you need medical attention, you need to you know, work with your daughter, uh, doctor and, and you know, avail yourself of the skills and uh, the me medications that they have. However, as a general rule of thumb, as we, as we deal with day-to-day -day anxiety, there are positive ways that we can that we can deal with that uh, with that malady, and how do we do that? Well, it's actually pretty clearly spelled out in in this uh, in this passage where he says, "Make with prayer and uh, supplication with thanksgivings, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus." But often we'll find ourselves saying, well, I pray for this, that, or the other thing. And it seems like God doesn't answer it, answer my prayer. Um, so how do we temper that? Well, one of the main things is, is what's coming up in this passage and what's revealed is um, if we're asking and asking and asking and God's not answering the way that we want, how, how then do we get our answer? Well, when we're asking, we're I mean, when we're praying, we're asking, right? But we also need to inform our minds. We need to renew our minds daily. And what we renew it with is God's word. So if we continue on to uh, kind of wrap this up, there's no better wrap-up, really, than the last two verses of chapter 4, where, uh, where the Apostle Paul writes, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, Whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So there's nothing more beautiful, and there's nothing to be that we could desire more than to be called out, to be part of a family, to know that we have eternal salvation, those are our greatest needs. And where do we find answers to those questions? Solely in God's word. So again, uh, for every question in life, and when we're asking and, we're, and we don't think we're receiving the proper answer or the answer that we think would be proper, we need to dig deeper into God's word and every day try to uh, use God's word as a way to temper what we're asking. Because it's so easy to just ask with our own heart in mind and then now I'm going to circle all the way back to because we're out of unity then with God and by reading God's word he's going to bring us into unity with his spirit by the power of his spirit 
And that will in turn, if we keep the central focus, um, if we keep the main thing the main thing, God will then be able to use that to, uh, to inform our minds and our hearts and our prayers to him so that we are filled with joy in everything that we do and we know the peace that passes all understanding because our hearts have been, have been united with him and they'll be united with one another. So um, as I studied for this message, I found it interesting that um, there was just a lot that a person could, a lot of different directions that we could go. But in the end, so much of um, what God's trying to teach us is so simple. But it's in living it out that it's complicated because we have so many different um, desires in our own hearts. We have so many different things bombarding us daily that are vying for our attentions and vying for our, uh, for, you know, for us to give um, to give ourselves to. And as has been said before, that's when we place something else as an idol on the altar of our, altar of our lives. We, we've taken our eyes off the main focus of what we should be doing and who we should be and whose we should be. And we've, we've, uh, we've completely set God aside. So when we've done that, of course he wouldn't answer in the way that we would think because we're not even um, trying to reflect who he is. So... Uh, my encouragement to all of us is that we would continue to use God's word as a sounding board and as, uh, some, as the information that would guard our hearts, guide our path, and would inform our, our speech, our actions, and, and who we are so that we can be unified as a body of believers and, and one with the Holy Spirit of God. So let's, let's pray. Father, thank you so much that... Um, that you give us a body to, uh, to be a part of and that, Father, as we've been grafted in as believers, um, nothing should give us more peace than that. But, Father, we are short-sighted, we have short memories, and, uh, and our eyes grow, grow dim and weary uh, with, with the, um, the difficulties of life. So, Father, thank you that you also don't leave us alone and, and wandering about trying to figure out what to do. You gave us this powerful book which is so beautiful and so excellent that we could avail ourselves of reading it every day and we could use it to, um, to uh, temper who we are and make us more like Christ. So I pray that you would do that for us and that as you draw us close to you, Father, that we would draw close to one another and that we would just be a, such a bright, shining beacon of light and love here in Verona that it would draw others to you. Because there's nothing about us that's noteworthy, Father, but you are amazing beyond all measure and worthy of all of our praise, glory, and honor. And so we ask you that you would do these things for your glory in the name of Christ. Amen.